When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And welcome to T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. The most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight. This is not your average podcast. T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy. It's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us. We don't do interviews. We do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill. We drink. We play games. We have the song of the week. We have the creative curse word of the week. As long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week I'm going to go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably, doctors probably, probably strippers that are only stripping so they can pay for tuition to become a doctor. You never know. My wife is a certified bartender. She'll make you a drink while you're here. We'll get you drunk and make you play VR after. It's a lot going on, but that's what it's all about over here at T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. See you soon, baby! Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I have a first-time guest, someone that has been often requested, and someone that, you know, we've been circling it for a little while, and that is Nikias Duncan of the Dunker Spot podcast of Basketball News, and had a great wide-ranging conversation on what we've seen through a little less than a week of the playoffs, talk a lot about Tuesday's Game 2 of Clippers Mavericks, Lakers Suns, and a lot of the other series, cover a lot of ground, really loved the conversation runs about an hour i hope you love it too well thank you so much for coming on oh no problem thanks for having me there are eight different series some of which are more discussion worthy than others but i wanted to leave the choice to you on on where to start whether it's the stuff that happened on tuesday or really wherever you want to go uh let's start with clippers mavericks because that series just intrigues the heck out of me yeah, I, I agree. And it is, I, I mean, I've been wrong on the Clippers basically, it feels like for the last two years. And that's, and that's fine. You know, that's a part of part of this experience. And I was more confident that they would be able to maybe not stop. I mean, the Mavericks are really good offense and when, especially when they've been fully healthy. But what has struck me so far through two games of the series is that the Clippers have had to work so much harder for worse looks than the Mavericks have. Mm-hmm. I am I, I would agree with you that the Clippers have had to work a little bit harder. Like I think we collectively have been harping on the rim pressure issue for the Clippers all season long. Just because the three point shooting has been great, but it's also kind of come 
at the expense of getting easier looks inside and kind of playing inside out that way. They have remarkable shot making just in terms of the catch and shoot guys and also just Paul George Kawhi are incredible in pull-ups. But there was always this nagging feeling about what that was going to look like in the postseason. But even with that, like the Clippers were a team I saw making at least the Western Conference Finals, if not the finals, depending on how the matchups played out. And to this point, they were much better offensively in game two than in game one. But like at this point, it almost doesn't even matter what's happening on the offensive end of the floor because they have absolutely no answer for Luka right now. Like I anticipated Luka being very good because he is very good. And that's kind of why I gave them two games. Full disclosure, I had the Clippers in six heading into the series. But the way that Luka has picked them apart and the way that the Clippers have kind of allowed him to pick them apart is concerning to me. Like, I think the way that I think switching is generally the way to go with Luka. Like, you can't play drop defense against him. Like, he's just too good at getting downhills, too good at making passes. So keeping things in front always made the most sense to me. But it's the switches are so soft. They're just making it incredibly easy for him. He's just picking on whoever. If Zubak is game one, it's whenever they get a point guard on him, he just mashes him on the block. He's able to just – and it's a high screen. If the guy is even in the vicinity, the Clippers switch it. So it almost doesn't matter that they put, like, Kawhi or PG on Luka at different times. They just switch out of the matchup, and Luka just goes to work. So I'm curious to see, like, what adjustments the Clippers make as they head to Dallas. Right, and it is easy a lot of times to think about defensive matchups as a one-on-one endeavor. And in certain schemes and certain times, it gets closer to that. But if you're—I mean, the Rockets-Warriors series over the years were a good crystallization of this, but there have been plenty over time. It's that if— you you want to switch things aggressively then the story becomes who do you who does the other team want to have on on their best offensive player and then Correct. that's the matchup and so Zubats was a big problem in game 1 and as you brought up in game 2 it was the reminder that Luka Doncic is significantly bigger than some of the other I use the term primary ball handlers initiators whatever whatever floats your boat in that term and I mean this came up with LeBron years ago and it was something that intrigued many of us about Ben Simmons before he continued to not want to or be able to shoot jump shots is when that player is bigger you take certain options off the board and the way that Luca controlled dominated whatever you want to use Patrick Beverly in game two especially there was some of it in game one but he sought out Beverly in game two and that makes sense when you think about Lucas size and his skill level and that he can turn aggressiveness if it comes in the kind of the wrong form Luca mm-hmm. can turn aggressiveness into something negative and mm-hmm. can, can and can wield that and is so patient that he can hold an advantage for longer than most people. And it's those things that make it so make me so much more confident that not that the like that the Clippers have no shot in this series or anything like that, but that it's going to be very difficult for them to stop the Mavericks enough for the Clippers to win four out of five games, because that's what they have to do now. Now, it isn't. this isn't a question of could the Clippers theoretically win four out of seven, because two of these games are already over, and them occurring in LA makes it harder for the Clippers. I don't think that's a dramatic difference, but I do think it's a difference. Right. But, but that's where, like, the series isn't over. I'm not saying it's like a 0% chance that the Clippers win. No, no team has defied my expectations more in the last couple of years, mostly in the negative, than them, but who knows? <laughs> It can go in the other direction, but that's the fundamental challenge for me is like, I don't see a a secret, a magic bullet, a catch-all that the Clippers can do that's going to hold Dallas to, let's call it like a 110 or a 115 offensive rating for two mm-hmm. or three games, which you need because, as you 
said, like they're a they're they're a jump shooting team, and I think some people use that in an like an all negative way. I don't, but the problem with even if you're one of the greatest jump shooting teams of modern vintage is that they're going to be nights that your shot's not going to go in. Like that that's going to happen, and so to win four out of five against a team that you can't really stop is a big ask. I would agree. Um, going back to your Beverly point, like he did seek him out more in game two than in game one, but game one was a trendsetter. Like yeah. he said very early in that game, like you can't, uh, let's just say you can't defend me is what <laughs> Luca told Patrick Beverly. And like, once he got that matchup, he went to the block early and that's been the development of Luca's post game has gone a little bit under the radar. I feel yes. like on a, on a national scale, like I, I've talked about it. I know Zach Lowe has talked about it and written about it, if I'm not mistaken. But that just him being able to operate more in the intermediate area just unlocks everything because like he can get to the step back or the side step jumper whenever he wants to. And like the percentages on that shot have kind of fluctuated throughout the year. But ultimately, that is a weapon that is in his bag, no matter who's defending him. He can get that shot. And if it's a smaller guy or just a guy that doesn't know how to navigate screens, Luca can get to the rim whenever he wants to. And that unlocks the passing. Him being able to now put a guy on his hip and take fadeaways or just completely bullies point guards if they get that point of attack assignment, it just adds another dimension to Dallas's half-court attack. Like, they don't necessarily need a bunch of intricate sets. They they have them because Rick Carlisle's a fantastic coach, and they'll always have that kind of stuff built in. But they can also just simplify things, which is what a lot of the postseason comes down to, simplifying, executing, just being better than your opponent. Luka could just put a guy on his hip and say, all right, what are you going to do with this? Right. And the Clippers just don't have a great answer. And and it ties in with something that I mean, there are various examples you could think of in the past. The one the one that I always go to or often go to is LeBron James, where somebody who is really good, really young generally improves dramatically like it's not a it's not a linear thing or anything like that it's just people who have those gifts who are talented enough as basketball players to be really good at a young age and whether we're talking about Luca's European time or we're talking about his rookie year he had you know and he had arguably the best age 20 season in the history of the NBA and it wasn't necessarily obvious how that was going to happen for Luca. I mean, when you think about how, to use Seth Partnow's term, how heliocentric the Mavericks offense was, there isn't mm-hmm. really too much further that can go. He was arguably the most valuable offensive player. And partially because that team just got ravaged by COVID and injuries and everything else, like he didn't see it in the team-wide stuff. But Luca's three-pointer looked more consistent. He was able to, also, he's gotten more versatile with his jump shot. And then the post-game, as, as you talked about, you know, it hasn't been as big of a story it has really improved and the other element that kind of ties that all together is while dallas's supporting talent is not perfect and there are certain teams that if they go into it will be will be a challenge i mean they don't have they have better defenders than they have before but then they have you know some limitations in terms of like overall like kind of overall shooting like they have a lot of good shooters but like can they get to that level where oh god you can't leave all these guys open but that's also how the luca post game works is this idea that playing a stretch five like Kristaps Porzingis like there was for time and there was a time in Dallas that this was true too where okay you're playing a stretch five that means you can play somebody who's really good at another position but they can't shoot and mm-hmm. Michael Kidd Gilchrist has been used in that space there are various other guys but the more logical end game there was always well why not just play five guys who could shoot sure. and and then or if you could make I mean to an extreme beyond what LeBron's teams have done and everything else if Luka Doncic is your worst shooter 
yeah. then it's going to be extremely devastating. And that is a part of what opens up his postgame. Whereas you compare that to when the Lakers, when, when they played with another traditional big, like when it's Drummond and, and Anthony Davis, the postgame stuff doesn't really work for either of them because there are just too many people in the area. Right, right. And to that point, like, that's why uh, I actually I end up writing about this for Basketball News, kind of previewing every series and they can taking something that I was looking for in each series. Like, I felt like Dorian Finney-Smith was going to be one of the most important players in this series because that is the guy you're talking about shooting. You know, Luka has the ball in his hands. That is the guy that the Clippers were going to be willing to help off of. Like, during the regular season matchup, that was the guy that Zubats quote-unquote guarded. So you can kind of roam and muck things up elsewhere. But Dorian Finney-Smith has shot well, shot, I think, 39% for three this season. He's continued to shoot well throughout the first two games of this series. So, like, there went your help point at that at that point. And if you can't help off of him, you have those other shooters around. Like, there isn't a great way to answer Luka. Like, you're not going to double him on the block because he's just going to pick you apart. And now that he's improved as a scorer, like, that is your half-court answer when things really slow down. And the Mavericks don't play that fast anyway. So they're kind of tailor-made for this style of basketball um one point that i've made on the dunker spot before talking about steve it was more so a defensive point for the clippers like they don't have a lot of speed on the roster they don't and like i meant it defensively i was i was kind of making the point like they have a bunch of like long and rangy dudes like paul george's has the massive wingspan like they have a bunch of wing size guys like they don't have a bunch of guys that can handle like just quicker players and so with that being the case if luca's able to draw advantages at all like those rotations are a little bit low. They're a little bit longer, a little bit slower. The Mavericks have the cracks to kind of beat you with catch and shoots, and they've been able to do that throughout the first two games. Like they are shooting out of their minds. Yeah, that that's definitely true. And there's also this weird dynamic with the Clippers where they have a lot of players that are talented defenders, like in their in their own ways, but they've never really put only for like a few games. Like I remember that Rockets one pre um pre COVID where there's like, okay, they're really they're really shutting this shutting this down a little bit. And that game was also a really big offensive performance from them. But mm-hmm. the yeah, okay, they have a lot of really good defenders, but the what was a concern for me in the game two was they also didn't really I don't know if it was that they had a plan and didn't execute it or my theory was that they didn't have a cohesive plan of when this happens this is what we're going to do because like there were times where like there was that one where Batum and Zubats each thought one thought they were switching one thought they weren't and they got and Zubats got really mad and they gave up an easy they gave up an easy dunk and some were they like they 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 were low resist switch Zubats but then I think it was Kawhi and PG off ball they didn't switch and so then another guy broke to the basket and it doesn't have to be the same thing all the time I mean last year's heat the Raptors at various moments in times like yep but you have to be prepared the more uh, nebulous the more complicated you get the more coaching staff and players have to be completely on the same page and I haven't seen them on the same page in this series or really honestly in last year's playoffs either yeah that's been tough that I think that also contributes to the soft switching because I sure. think the only thing they have is that base. Like, all right, we're just going to switch and keep things in front. And if Dallas gets the matchup they want, then they're kind of confused. Like, okay, do we send help? How do we rotate behind this? If we do rotate behind this, are we going to be able to trust the guy to help the helper in that case? And if you have any kind of crack in that, like Luke is just going to pick you apart. Like he's either just going to flat out beat you or he's going to make the correct pass. And again, like it's not like the Clippers have a bunch of closing speed on the floor. They have length. But those guys are able to shoot before they can get a strong contest or they're just able to attack while they're scrambling and the defense is just in trouble throughout it. And once you add in the miscommunication there, like that makes it a lot easier. Like it's funny to me 
at the end of both game one and game two, like it's a Kristaps dunk off of a blown assignment when yep. they're trying to set the trap. And it's just like at a certain point, like I think game one, it was Luca on the right block and he gets the dunk after a cut. And then in game two, it was the left side. It was like, well, at a certain point, you got to figure out something. And it's weird to me because like Ty Lue has this reputation, like even going back to Cleveland, like, all right, once it's playoff time, this is when he's going to break out the adjustments. And like, that's not to take anything away from him because that's very much been true, especially during the title year in Cleveland. But to see this team out of sorts, it's one thing to get beaten because Luka is just that kind of singular talent. And the Mavericks do have shooters. Like they mostly underperformed during the regular season because of COVID, because of injury, just roster flux and things like that. But they have guys that can knock down, catch and shoot shots. So if you just get beat, then fine, tip your cap. The fact that they're getting beat and manipulated and then also just looking flustered, it's not it's hard to feel confident in them. Yeah. And that is, I think, what's what's so different. I mean, there are a bunch of different reasons between this series and the Lakers one. And you draw the parallel because they both play in Staples where we saw in the last three minutes of game two where. You got, oh yeah, first of all, we saw it last year, but also like the Lakers have something they can do that some of the problems they've been having can be solved. Like they have personnel switches, they have scheme things that they can do. And in those last three minutes, the defense looked a lot better. Now, they didn't have to really face Chris Paul during that. We can see how some of those challenges are. But the Clippers, there hasn't been a stretch in this series where it's looked better, where it's been like, okay, you know, if they if they do this more, if they execute a little bit, like they're on the right track. I haven't seen them on the right track defensively at all in this series mm-hmm. yeah and that that's going to be the point i think i'm trying to remember what the exact number is uh, one of my followers tweeted at me that the clippers had i think a 121 offensive rating in game two and yeah like, i think it, I, 121 or like maybe 124 it was really yeah the, i mean they were and paul george and Kawhi both had really effective offensive games yeah and like if that's the production you're getting team wide and also from your two stars and like you just don't have a hope in the game because you can't get that it just kind of speaks to how much the defense is an issue right now exactly it's i'm absolutely fascinated to see where the series goes from here i i fully expect that it could be a long one like there i mean the clippers are a talented team the mavericks as good as their shooters are they might not shoot over 50 percent for a third game in a row but the fundamentals of this series are so firmly in the mavericks favor just because i and maybe it's limitations of my imagination but i don't know if you like kind of based on what we've seen both this year and i mean you could think about some of the other big games the mavericks have had against the clippers and in these kind of like roster configurations i don't see how they solve this riddle enough to win four out of five to win two out of three sure like that's absolutely like these are two talented teams you could see that go in any direction especially the clippers have scored well on the mavericks at times but that's the standard when once a team is down oh two the standard becomes can you win four out of five Mm mm-hmm and like even during the regular season, like the Clippers weren't able to do that. Like right. I mean, we kind of throw the first game out just because <laughs> the Clippers were down like 40 or something in the first half. And it was just kind of one of those. And I think that was without Kawhi, if I remember correctly. So that was just kind of one of those. But even in the two matchups that they end up splitting after that, like <clears throat> the Clippers didn't score at a super high rate in either of those games, which I guess that makes it encouraging that they were able to score the way that they did in game two. But also, to your point, like they just have not had a great answer to Luka. Again, I think the answer is switching in general, but they have to tighten up and get more detailed about when they want to switch just to kind of they, they got to take away something because they're just letting Luka dictate way too much. Um, I guess the case to make is that they do tighten up on that regard and the Mavericks do suffer a little bit of a shooting regression, but also making that case as Dallas is going home with their crowd and also having a 2-0 lead, like it's hard to make. 
man, I I just the Clippers absolutely had the talent to pull this off. And I picked them in six before the series, so like it wouldn't be completely shocking to me if it ends up being a six game series. But man, do they have their work cut out for them? Yeah, they they really do. I want to turn to another two zero series, and that's Milwaukee Miami. Another one that I, to an extent, have miscalibrated. And the w- the thing that I was that was the hardest for me to figure in Miami Milwaukee was not whether the Bucks would be able to score because I mean we, there were there were potential challenges there, and they've changed their roster around. But what has surprised me the most is that through two games, the Heat have not been able to generate reliable offense. Good. Sh- shots, making those shots, whatever against the Bucks, And so that's the, you know, that's kind of the analog and why I was thinking about going here from the other series is that yes, Miami can play better defensively. They have all this talent, but Bam has looked lost. Uh, he, he's had a especially disappointing game too. I mean, game two was over within 10 minutes, but like, you know, you get into all that. How, do you see it the same way that I do that Miami's offense is kind of the key point here? Uh, I do believe that their offense is going to be the key point. Like Bam is a great place to start. Because he's one of the guys that has built-in looks whenever he wants it. Yep. With Milwaukee still, like, they switch more, especially one through four, but they are still keeping Brooke Lopez in that drop. So as you made the point about Miami not being able to generate good looks, like, I think they have built-in shots to get. Just working those dribble handoffs with Duncan Robinson or working pick-and-rolls with, uh, with Duncan Robinson or whatever. Like, if you're attacking Brooke Lopez in that drop, like, you're going to have pull-up opportunities. So they have that. And with that being the case, you know, Bam is the guy that screens or works as the handoff man more often than not in those actions. Brooke Lopez is giving him space. At a certain point, Bam has to call his own number sometimes just to mix things up and force Brooke to take up, you know, take a step out of the paint. Because right now, Milwaukee knows that Bam doesn't want to take the shot. Yep. If he's if he's taking uh, jumpers like game one was a big thing for him. I think he went four or 15 and like. Sure, he took 15 shots, but how many of those shots were, all right, this is my spot, I'm getting it, and not so, well, this handoff didn't work, there's five on the clock now, I need to take something. It's been too much of shooting when he has to instead of shooting and kind of asserting himself in that way. So that's definitely an issue. The other thing is Milwaukee went Giannis on Jimmy Butler from the jump, Yep, which is not something that I expected. Like I figured it was either going to be Giannis on Bam just to kind of take away those dribble handoff looks and really kind of – um, you know, cut the head off the top, cut the head off the snake, or it was going to be Giannis on Trevor Reza, so he can just kind of roam around and operate as the helper that he is, the kind of helper that helped him win Defensive Player of the Year last season. So for them to go Jimmy at the, at the jump, I'm just like, oh, this is interesting. This is, <clears throat> I can't remember who wrote it. Oh, I should have had the article pulled up, but it was kind of akin to the Lakers putting Anthony Davis on Jimmy Butler and just saying, all right, cool. If you're going to be the primary initiator, shoot over this long dude. You already don't want to take jumpers, but try to navigate against this 6'11", 6'10", beast and get good offense. We bet you can't. And to this point, they have not been able to. Game one, Jimmy Butler goes two of nine from three. A lot of early clock pull-ups. Went four of 22 overall. Like, he did have some pockets to attack and pick and roll because I've been hammering home the point that Giannis, as great of a defender as he is, He's not a guy that navigates screens particularly well. So, like, there are going to be, like, those elbow pull-ups there. And Jimmy Butler has capability of knocking out those. He didn't in game one in particular. But those are shots in his wheelhouse. And it just hasn't flowed for either of those guys. Like, the guy that's been the most comfortable in this series for Miami, I believe, is Duncan Robinson. And if that's the case, you're kind of in trouble because you need your two stars, you know, as does as a point as it is, you need your two stars to set the table. You don't need, like, Duncan Robinson can't be, he's a pressure point for you, but he can't be the only source of good option that you can generate. 
Right. And Robinson, I think he can be a, it's, it's, it's a thing you can go to, but it can't be your bread and butter because that's just right. not the way NBA offenses work. And Butler, yes, he got to the line at times in game one, but I mean, the shot distribution is also really telling when you think about what Jimmy Butler wants to do in that game. He took six shots in the paint. He took seven mid-rangers and nine threes. And mm-hmm. it, and sometimes it's useful not just to think about whether the shots go in or out, but it's, are these the shots that that team wants to take? And it's pretty unambiguous that the answer is, is there. And, and if you bring in the further context, as you did with both Jimmy and Bam, that they a lot of those were forced or settles, you know, kind of on e- on either end of that spectrum where it's like, you know, you're, you're not getting the shot you want. And that's more mm-hmm. important than than anything else. And so one potential solution for me with Miami is that you put more on Goran Dragic's shoulders, or at least you shift the distribution a little bit. And then if you play Dragic more with the starting unit, I would start him in game three. Then at least you're giving yourself some alternate looks. And maybe maybe then you can you could even run some Jimmy some Jimmy Goron stuff and see if you can get people uncomfortable there. You could do, there's some, some interesting, you, you bring up some new things and yes, you're not going to be able to play Dragic, Butler and Bam 48 minutes each or anything like that, but finding something that works and finding combinations will be important. Like I thought Kendrick Nunn didn't really have it on either end in game two. And that wasn't why they lost. There are a bunch of different reasons why they lost, mm-hmm. but I don't think none, you know, like I don't think he brings the stress to a defense that Goran Dragic does. And Dragic is perfect but that is something the heat haven't stressed out the bucks really that much yet and bam is probably the key to that just because of the shots that milwaukee's defense concedes and duncan mm-hmm. robinson has done that to his extent but i i think Dragic, and it's not again it's not necessarily about him playing significantly more minutes because you think about what what Dragic did you know in game game one yes it went to overtime but he played 30 35 minutes i don't necessarily think he's going to play more than that not sure he's capable but shifting that around and maybe you're going to sacrifice a little bit and and also then that puts you in a a different situation in terms of how you want to handle drew holiday which i mean drew's Mm -hmm. Drew's awesome but i i i think it's at least worth trying but you know oh two you have to try everything yeah, like I, I think it starts with they have to free Jimmy because again, Bam is just gonna have built-in looks. Like if he's sure. gonna be defended by Brook Lopez, he's gonna have mid-range, mid-range jumpers or floaters or whatever whenever he wants to. The key starts with um, opening Jimmy up a little bit, and if it's a Giannis assignment, it's gonna be forcing Giannis to fight over screens. Um, one thing that I ended up tweeting about after Game One, there was a possession in the first quarter. I think it was at, it was either after a Milwaukee turnover or after a miss. I think it was after a miss, but Jimmy trots up the left side of the floor. And he executes a dribble handoff with Duncan Robinson. And Milwaukee switches this. So now instead of Chris Middleton defending Duncan Robinson like he normally was, now it's Giannis on Duncan Robinson. And then Duncan Robinson immediately flows into a pick and roll with Bam Adebayo. Duncan flows, you know, gets to pull. He pulls up above the break and gets an easy look because Giannis gets hung up on the screen. So it's stuff like that, like that frees Duncan, of course. But if you're able to generate that kind of switch, maybe there's a handback to Jimmy Butler. Now he's operating against Chris Middleton instead of Giannis. That's less length to worry about. He might have an easier job of getting to his spots. Um, I agree with your point, like inverting things, like have some Jimmy Gorn pick and roll or some Gorn Jimmy pick and roll just to kind of um, flip those matchups a bit. You have to get Jimmy some easier looks. But I think I just don't know where Bam's like aggression is. I'm not going to on, like, on either end of the four, honestly. Like, I mean, defensively, he's left something to be desired, desired too. Yeah, he was much better in game one than he was in game two. I, I, we can just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> That's for damn sure. Like, it, 
I don't know. Like, it, it just kind of comes down to finding easier looks for the stars to me. Like, I think you know what shots you're going to get out of Duncan just by virtue of the actions that he's running, how they're going to attack Bruce Lopez, or if it's the second unit, um, Bobby Portis, and those drop looks. It's a similar thing with Goran Dragic. Like, uh, you know he's going to run a bunch of high pick and roll. He's going to it's gonna be 1-5 with him, and you're going to attack Brooke in the drop. The question is, how do you get Jimmy good looks? We know what looks Bam are going to get. We just need we just need to know if Bam's actually going to be comfortable taking those looks. Like the question, it starts with Jimmy. I feel like it does, and also you know the, the shots that he's comfortable with and the shots that he's going to take, and and Giannis's limitations on screens like that. That is the to me the the kind of the centerpiece of where Miami's offensive strategy has to go. I mean, Giannis is a wonderful player, but that's not something he does very well, and so some of that can even be off ball stuff. I mean, you so and and I think that opens up a little bit with with Dragic on the floor too. That you maybe you're running something and then Duncan Robinson or Hero or somebody else is setting a setting an off ball screen for Jimmy Butler and he's coming to the ball and then going downhill. Like maybe you even run some stuff kind of out of the Pelicans Zion playbook and you try to get mm-hmm. him the ball going downhill with either with Giannis being caught from a screen from behind or him being on someone else on the play. Like that sort of stuff could work pretty well. Ooh, I would agree with you. That's a great point about design. They just kind of get them lifting from the corner and attacking from the slot there. Yep. That definitely would make some sense. Because right now it's just a lot of not only is the Giannis matchup just bothering him from a physical standpoint, when Jimmy gets those touches, it's from a standstill. Right. So you're also giving both Giannis and Brooke Lopez, if that's who he's attacking giving them a chance to just kind of set up shop and see where he's going. And like Jimmy is a super strong dude. He's not a super explosive dude from like a speed standpoint or anything like that. He's a very strong and crafty dude. So it's not even like you're going to be able to bend the defense in that kind of way. And like Mil- ultimately Milwaukee isn't scared of him as a shooter to begin with. So it's already kind of you're starting from a de- deficit. So you need to do whatever you can to kind of generate those advantages. Something else that I've thought about a little bit over the last couple of years, um, this was, some of this was Durant guarding Harden a couple of years ago, but it's to me the best way to counter a foul drawer is actually with length rather than with strength. Because with length, you can contest and you can bother without being close enough that some of that stuff works. Right. So it's it, to me, it's, it's there's a similar thing. You have to have you know sufficient physical tools and other things. Like you can't put Taco Fall on Jimmy Butler and think that everything's going to work <laughs> out. Right. But Giannis is, is a good example of that. But you, so you need to use some of the lateral limitations that he has and everything else if you're going to exploit the, what he doesn't bring to the table. Because like that was the f- funniest thing watching Harden, which we're not going to see now for a couple of years at least, of Harden trying to draw fouls on Kevin Durant is you can't get into his body because his body is too far away from you. <laughs> and right. and so Jimmy Butler, he did get 10 free throws in game one. And, and, and you know, he'll be able to do that, especially when there's an advantage. But it's really interesting. And that's also like the unfortunate thing about us recording this on Wednesday during the day is the game, I would say the game I'm most interested in for all of the remainder of round one is game two of Hawks Knicks, because these are two coaches that have not been great for in-series adjustments in their past, and yes. I have no idea what to expect. Oh, buddy, because Trey, uh, they are serving up on a platter for Trey Young, and that I mean, I picked the Hawks before the series. Like, I think they had more talent, but also I didn't know how the Knicks would solve the Trey Young problem over the course of the series. Because even going through the film of those games in which the Knicks won, and like Julius Randle just looked like some version of like Wilt mixed with, <laughs> with yeah. Kobe sometimes. But 
with Trey Young going through his pick and roll film in particular, like the Knicks defended him well. I don't want to take that away from him, but like ultimately it ended up being Trey missing floaters that he normally makes. Trey flowing out of double drag and early offense looks and going to his pull up three and the three just not falling. It's not like he's it's not like the shots are coming with like six seconds left in the clock because he can't do anything against the Knicks point of attack defenders. It's a lot of him missing. And then we get to game one. <clears throat> like you kind of, he, he knew, he knew and we knew what to expect from the Knicks defense. Like it's drop defense. They're playing the big man a little closer to the screen still, but it's still drop. They'll pre rotate a little bit on the back line. So you already know you're going to have pockets for pull-ups. If you get downhill, you're going to have pockets for floaters. And because of the guy coming in early on the backside, there's going to be a corner skip available. So you fast forward to like the fourth quarter and the Hawks flow into this is it's like three straight double drag looks where they get, you know, they get uh, John Collins popping. They get downhill they get a corner skip there. Derrick Rose gets a stop. I believe it was a it was either a steal or a block. They got a block on a Trey Young floater. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, and then right after that, they just say, okay, cool. We're just going to run Spain pick and roll now then. And then they get a, a lob to Clint Capella. They get a three ball to, I believe, it was either Bogdanovich or Kevin Bogdanovich, yeah. Bogdanovich. And then they get the above the break three from DeAndre Hunter. And it's just like, well, there's only so much you can do without switching your scheme because these are the shots that you allow. There's going to be something good every time down at this point, and Trey ends up sealing the game later on. So... I'm just curious to see what the Knicks do. Like, I think the easy adjustment would be to mix in some trapping just because Trey Young is incredibly small. And, like, if it's a single ball screen with Clint Capella or John Collins, like, neither of those guys are great on the short roll in terms of accurate passing or just making quick decisions. Right. So you can trust your defense to kind of rotate behind that. And even if they make the right pass, you should be able to get out to the shooter and just kind of make it. You you turn that from a four on three to a four on four by the time it matters. And if it's double drag, that gets a little bit trickier. But even still, like with those two bigs in particular, they well, are like great can, passes. You, on you can way. zone up behind the play and, and sort it kind of sort it out after. And the other thing with Trey about with the double drag is he's it's sort of the spiritual thing about going under on the screen is that him taking the shot that results immediately after is not the worst case scenario. Him getting mm-hmm. downhill and getting into the teeth and forcing a reaction, that is way more dangerous for the defense than what you initially concede. Right, right, right. So uh, I want to see if the Knicks mix in some trapping, because other than, if not that, I don't think they want to switch, because I sure, trust your bigs on Trey Young in space if you want to do that. Like, Randall's improved. I wouldn't want him to have a heavier dose of that. Nerdles Noel is very good on the interior, but he's still very jumpy, and he will still foul you. And he's also dealing with the ankle, so who, there's no telling what his mobility is going to look well, like. And, and on, to- on top of the, the Nerlens part of it, I think is more hairy for the Knicks. Not not because Nerlens, I think he's a better theoretical switch defender than Randall, but because the Knicks system is built on rim protection, but it's not built on a lot of rim protectors on the floor at once. It's, you know, right. usually it's one dude. And so this is actually something that Clay Capello should be very familiar with on the other side, which is, and I mean, we this has come up in Miami series before I've, you know, I've criticized Bam for this many times in the past is that if you can, if you can draw the other team's rim protector out, that opens up so many other things that are going to create open looks. We've seen this a little bit in the, in the Clippers series, though they don't have the same rim protection, but it's the same idea that 
when you when you pull out the the, the center of the heart, then you have all these little places to put daggers in. And I think mm-hmm. that and and with a switch, Trey is going to have some passing angles. He's not going to have all of them. And I mean, that's one of the huge differences between the two guys who were functionally traded for each other, Luca and Trey, is that trapping, doubling, like the passing angles are a lot harder for Trey Young than they are for Luca because he's just a smaller human being. But if you're doing that by bringing the center out, you have to react somewhat quickly because otherwise somebody's getting something around the basket and nobody there is good at stopping him. Right, right. And even to that point about the slipping, like John Collins is probably the best slip big in the NBA. So if it's just one four picker rolls and they know the Knicks are going to switch that, there are still avenues to get downhill if you get the ball out of Trey's hands. So yeah, that's and, and they could bring somebody else through a cut or something else, like you know, kind of kind of a, a, an alternative short of like short short roll or something like that. There are other ways you could bring time things in and bring it in. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, I'm so excited for Game Two of that series. I, I just like where where does it go and what what happens from there uh let's let's go to lakers suns it's in some ways it's easy for me to say oh well especially if chris paul is limited and it was so dispiriting to see him not be mm-hmm. himself in game two say oh well if they just you know if they build the whole thing out of anthony davis the center they'll win but it's also true <laughs> like it doesn't have to be complicated yeah like game one was interesting because they went 88 to 5 and it was technically a little bit better then their two center looks, but also Anthony Davis was just kind of awful oh, by his standard. He was, he, it was a rough game for him. It was very, like, they just completely left Phoenix off the hook, and he in particular left Phoenix off the hook. Like, for all the complaints about AD kind of having to work in a phone booth with, with Andre Drummond in the dunker spot, which is true, AD kind of leans towards the jumper anyway, so you can't completely let him off the hook for that. Um, when they did go AD at the five, uh, I think midway through the first quarter in game one, they got that quick hitter to get uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope lifted from the corners to dribble handoff. Um, DeAndre Ayton steps up, Anthony Davis gets a lob on it. And after that, like I don't recall an instance of like AD running off a pin down or anything. There wasn't really any creative usage of him at the five. And it just turned into an ISO fest against DeAndre Ayton. And like for all the warts that Ayton may have in space, like or just navigating things, if you just give him the same assignment over and over again, this is something that Steve Jones Jr. has made a point of on the podcast before. If you just give Ayton a singular assignment, like, hey, you are going to drop, or hey, you're going to switch. If you tell him it's one thing, like he's gonna be good at it because he has the tools to do so. And so the Lakers nor AD really stressed him at all. And in game two, Anthony Davis was a lot more aggressive. Like the usage itself wasn't much different, but him making an emphasis to get downhill, just being more decisive, it kind of kept Phoenix on their heels. And that shifted quite a bit. So I think you need that level of aggression from AD. It was nice to see Marcus all on the floor for the floor for the first time. What felt like three years. Oh, so the ball actually moved. It was nice. It was interesting. It, you mean to tell me that the seven footer that can shoot a little bit uh, doesn't want to shoot? Doesn't seem like like the three hit. Uh, I want to say in the fourth quarter. Oh, it was no. hilarious. He pass he pass fakes himself into an open shot and then goes, "No, I don't want to shoot that." And then like it was like there was a like there was a a stun gun pointed to him and he's like, "You have to shoot it." And he's fine. <laughs> It was like he passed out. It was like, oh, man, I guess I was ruining my advantage. And the Suns are just staring at him like, no, we're not going to rotate to this. Like, shoot it if you want to. We don't care. And he just looks down. He pivots his foot a little bit, still waits, and then fires and makes it. And I'm just like, wow, well, this doesn't help the Mark Gasol should play more <laughs> argument. <laughs> Because it's great to have a spacer at the five, but if the spacing is theoretical because the dude has like a 25 shot tendency, just making a 2K reference, like it doesn't really matter that much. But yeah, it was nice to see him out there at least providing the semblance of spacing and also being able to invert, like working above the break, having that passing ability that did allow, I mean, just on a basic level, it allows LeBron to work off ball a little bit more. 
Right. And I think for me, the bigger unlocking uh, with AD at center is actually defensive. And there all these trouble. I mean, the, this, we talked about the Spain pick and roll that the, the Hawks ran in game one. There was this, this barrage that the Suns did in game two. And there are a couple different explanations. But I think the most obvious is like they the Suns, the Suns were getting everything they wanted in, for a lot of the time running those Spain pick and rolls. And then mm-hmm. somehow, as soon as Anthony Davis is the only big on the floor, they're completely stymied and they're not getting any anything good anymore and i think that a part of it was the guards did a better job you know like that you know the, the lakers guards but another part of it is you just it's easier to solve all of that when the only big involved in the action is one of the best defensive bigs ever and especially one of the most versatile and so davis can get from point a to point b and there was that crazy block that he had on Aiden. i believe that was not out of a spain action but he you know there was two seconds left in the shot clock and he was away from the basket and he's like well Aiden's gonna take this shot he flies over and gets it and it's so much easier to manage all of that stuff when you have more players that can move. You have, honestly, in many cases, more intelligence on the floor. And so this, the Suns' little tricks that we're doing well, and that, that can work against most NBA teams because the Suns are very good. And even without Chris Paul, they have talent. It just doesn't work. And those three minutes, it's, it, what, for me, it wasn't the defense. And then when you're getting stops at the rate that the Lakers were during that time, A, you're getting a lot more in transition, which is going to help, but also like the play players will have more energy they have more bounce and you're gonna you're gonna get other opportunities all right like it just it would appear making very simple rotation tweaks <laughs> could <laughs> can open up a lot of things on both ends of the floor like i, I for one am shocked totally that, shocked yeah can't believe that marcus all was a help i can't believe that anthony davis like attempting to dribble inside of 18 feet is a good thing for pressuring a Suns defense that is very smart, very active, but also, like, looking across the board at least, kind of small. So, I don't know. I'm glad that the Lakers grabbed the low-hanging fruit. And then once you combine that with Chris Paul's shoulder injury, like, it's it's not looking great for Phoenix. Because if Paul's not out there, then the Lakers are going to have an easier time sending the doubles at Devin Booker that they have been because they're just not going to fear anyone else to the level that they may have feared Paul. Like, as great as Cam paid, played in game two, like, is he bending the Lakers' defense? Yeah, the, down, the just, downside I, risk isn't the same. Yeah, like, if Cameron Payne hits a bunch of threes or gets to the lane to get some floaters, it's just like, ah, oh, good job, campaign. It's not, holy crap, we got to stop campaign. And, like, that's just the fundamental difference between him and Chris Paul. Like, they just don't fear him like that. The, the important point is making sure that Devin Booker doesn't get off. And, like, he's already being defended by someone that's good. Like, Contavious Caldwell's a good defender. And then you now you're sending a double team at him at random pop, at random spots, and you're forcing those other guys to make plays behind the double. And like they just didn't get the same kind of opportunities in game two that they did in game one. Uh, also, just a general shout out to the Lakers' defensive intensity in that fourth quarter in game two because yeah. they they freaking brought it. And they're going to need to do that with more consistency. Uh, how freaked out are you about LeBron being basically a jump shooter and not a driver at all in these playoffs so far? It's weird. It's weird. Like I. I wonder, like, how much the ankle is actually affecting him. Because it is odd, like, he hasn't looked as explosive at the rim. And even just in terms of his future, like, he hasn't posted up as much as I thought he would be. Because, like, that was kind of something I was looking looking at heading into the series. Like, Mikael Bridges is one of my favorite players in the league, full stop. He's one of the best perimeter defenders in the league, full stop. But also, like, he's a guy that can slither slither over screens and contest. He's not necessarily a guy that's going to keep you off your spots because he's just, he's kind of thin. Right. So I was worried about LeBron just kind of neutralizing all the good things that Mikael Bridges does and just saying, all right, you're going to be on my hip for 80% of the series. Let's see what you do. 
So for the Lakers to not really lean into that, like I think it speaks to maybe LeBron's health. Maybe it's LeBron still feeling things out. There's also the natural thing of he can't really do that with the starting lineup if they're going to keep Anthony Davis and Andre Drummond out there together because there is going to be much space to work with there. Um, it's it's a combination of all those things. Like I, I'm curious to see like what he looks like moving forward. Um, obviously, it ended up not mattering too much in game two. He did have the shot going. And Anthony Davis picked up his end of the bargain. So they didn't really need him to take over in that way. So like one of the things it's interesting. I was just looking at this I was looking at the player tracking and the NBA's the NBA's tracking data says that LeBron averaged 11, 11 drives per game in these in these games, which is more than I would have thought. I cuz I hadn't noticed him driving that much. But here is something totally insane. He's averaging that. He's also averaging two shots per game on those 11 drives per game. So I think wow. a lot of it is like kind of perfunctory. It's like, "Oh, you're doing that." Whereas by comparison, Dennis Schroeder driving 13 times a game, taking five and a half shots a game. You know, and then mm-hmm. get and and also LeBron zero free throw attempts off of those drives. So yeah, that that's just not LeBron. I, it's I don't not. Know. And and so I don't know. It, it's so it's so fascinating to think about. Like if you want to game it out, like I I think the Lakers are they're in strong but not totally sure footing in this series. But like I don't know how to calibrate. I, thankfully, I've never had a high ankle sprain or anything like that. And there's the speculation, which I think is looking more and more sound, that he reaggravated it potentially in garbage time of that Pelicans game. Mm-hmm. That if. Like, basically, what does this look like for the next two to three weeks? Like, if, if LeBron is still recovering, I think they can still make it by the Suns, especially with, if Chris Paul is limited. And unfortunately, it looks like he will be at least for another little while longer. Mm-hmm. But moving forward, do you reach—I I mean, I think they—it's it, possible— in a weird way that what the maneuvering of everything else, it might have opened things up. Like maybe, maybe they could still make it by the Nuggets Blazers winner, even if with this version, if the, if the defense is stout, but I'm, I'm not sure. Like I, I feel simultaneously more confident that the Lakers are going to win this series after, you know, after two games and less like more concerned about their viability as a title contender. Right. Um, I just kind of, mentally mapping it out like if they beat phoenix the thing that's working in lebron's favor is that i mean if they discard him in five then they should have a little bit of a rest period yeah but even beyond the actual result who is the best defender lebron's going to see in the west after this series that's a great because question. because if you know it's not going to be in the second round <laughs> <laughs> right because second round you're either going to see like some robert covington which yeah we saw how that went in the houston series last year or like if denver wins it's Aaron Gordon, I guess, which I mean, Aaron Gordon's a good defender. I don't want to poo poo on that. But like, I don't think Aaron Gordon's going to really bother LeBron in that way. And then if they win that series, then they're going to play the winner of whoever wins the like the one eight and the four five bracket. And that's either going to be Utah and it's Royce O'Neal, who doesn't really do a great job on LeBron. Or, you know, if the Mavericks do pull this off and they're able to um, beat the Clippers, Dorian Finney-Smith. Maxi Kleba? Is that Maxi Kleba? Like, it's... Like, just looking at those kind of matchups. Uh, you, know, you know what would be the most wild thing? I mean, I assume LeBron, if that if, if it's Mavs, Lakers, in the conference finals, I'm assuming LeBron will be more dynamic then, would be mm-hmm. the most extreme of, like, make LeBron a driver is put Porzingis on him and just be like, okay, you're not shooting. <laughs> like, shoot your, <laughs> shoot your weird sidestep jump shots, like your, your Tokyo Drift fades and everything else, but that's going to be all you get, would be so interesting. Carlisle wouldn't do it. And I mean, the history between him and LeBron is fascinating, but like that, 
Um, another thing, like Mason Ginsburg and other people brought this up, the lingering effects of Anthony Davis making every jump shot imaginable in the 2020 playoffs. Because it's the problem there is that AD, he, you know, like kind of one of the one of the things with him is like he has all these physical capabilities, but it doesn't seem like he particularly wants them. You know, it's kind of like there was that... I, I might get the analogy a little bit wrong, but like there's this thing that like in the X-Men that like when Wolverine's when when Wolverine's like claws come out that it physically hurts him and so it's like he'll do it but he like he doesn't necessarily want to all the time unless he's really pissed off I kind of feel like that with Anthony Davis's physicality sometimes where it's like oh I can like fly across the court and do that but you know what if I could take jumpers I could do that and now he has more validation that they can do that and win a championship and I'm a little concerned because that wasn't what you expect moving forward from him as a jumper that he will do that more often than he should that's a great point and like it just kind of reminds me that Anthony Davis did not grow up a big man. And that's nope. normally spun in a positive way. Like he was always a guard and then he just had this massive growth spurt in high school. But like this is also kind of the downside of it because once things tighten up and that happens in the postseason, you typically go to what feels comfortable. And what feels comfortable to him is operating in that guard skill set. Like it's a lot of face ups, it's a lot of pull up jumpers, it's a lot of fadeaways. Like that's where he's most comfortable. He's good enough to make those. And, you know, the bubble run last year was just an incredible case of absurd shot making to the point to where maybe it isn't exactly replicable just because of how ridiculous he shot. Like, I I wish I had the Mason Ginsburg tweet in front of me to get the exact numbers, but I think he was like low 30s on long twos for like two or three series seasons. And then last year in the bubble was like over 50%. Right. Like to have that kind of jump is absurd. He's great, but like, is he that as a jump shooter? Probably not. So that's that's definitely a sign. I think that's why um, the Suns were comfortable heading in about like 80 at the five minutes and Aiden guarding him in particular because it's like, all right, cool. If Anthony Davis wants to take face up jumpers like Anthony, I mean, you know, DeAndre Aiden can contest those like that's fine. If that's what AD wants to do. And that's what we saw a lot in game one. And Aiden just kind of ate the Lakers up on the other end of the floor. And that matchup was kind of won. But AD has to have a more aggressive mindset than he's shown that he showed in game one in particular. Like, they need more of that game two to where he's willing to get downhill, get a bunch of free throw attempts. We can quibble about some of those free throw attempts, but <laughs> <laughs> the the moral is he has to get downhill more often. Uh, we can kind of end on on this. Where do you see I'm, – I'm genuinely torn. Where do you see Nuggets-Blazers going? Uh, I picked Nuggets in seven to start. I haven't seen anything that makes me want to lean off of that. I will say I'm probably a little bit more encouraged in game two since they were finally willing to take um, Compasso off of Damian Lillard. Yeah. Because I just did not. I get it. Like, I get what he brings at the point of attack, just being that kind of irritant. And, like, I think I made, the, I made this point to Steve before. Like, it's not a case of Portland running a pick and roll and he's, like, six feet behind the play because he can't navigate the screens or anything. Like, he's there, but just by virtue of his size, there's only so much he can physically affect. Yeah, he's not a bother, and that's a, that's and that and that was what was so interesting about Gordon spending more time on Lillard is that like you have to do a lot more to free Lillard up in those circumstances. Right, right, right. And just by virtue of what Denver wants to do behind their pick and rolls, like they play their big so high, like you, they have the pre rotation behind and things like that. If you can buy any amount of time to kind of navigate, you know, Portland short roll and what they're doing you know, on the perimeter and kind of pre-rotate and then rotate back out. If you can prolong that by having Aaron Gordon at the point of attack and he doesn't just get killed by a bunch of screens, then I think you take that. To that point, I'm a little bit worried about Denver's back line because Aaron Gordon at the point of attack means he's not on the back line. And that puts a lot more strain on um, Michael Porter Jr. in particular. 
And that can go either way. We'll just put it that way. But ultimately, like, I do think Denver has the best player in the series. Like, they've shown they are willing to counter the Damian Lillard matchup. So I'm I'm still holding firm to Denver and seven at this point. Yeah, that's pretty much where I am. I a lot of times game three is what clarifies whether it's going to be a long series or a short series because it's kind of like you've eat a lot of times, especially in a one one. Each team has gotten certain things that worked and certain things that didn't, and so you and, and changing locations and you get to do the adjustments. And so if the Nuggets win game three in kind of similar fashion to game two, then I'm I, I might feel more confident that it's not going to be a long series than I would be right. Right now but other than that it kind of feels to be like a six or a seven and i would say denver has the advantage there i would agree with that we didn't talk about a couple of series but i'll open the floor to you is there anything else you want to discuss um i feel sorry for the celtics uh, this is just a this is just a tough matchup for them sometimes you uh, just sometimes you just get eaten that's the way it goes <laughs> that's just incredibly tough also i'm interested in the pick and roll battle with memphis and utah like donovan mitchell coming back is going to change a lot and utah missed a ton of shots in game one that they probably won't miss moving forward. But like Memphis found some stuff in the second half as a way to attack and pick a roll. And that was before Rudy Gobert fouled out. So if they're able to keep Rudy in foul trouble, which is a tall task figuratively and literally, then I think they do have some pathways to score a little bit better than I anticipated. So maybe it's not going to be the five game series that I thought coming in. Uh, Utah might, I mean, Memphis might have a little bit more juice. They, they might. I, I think I undersold as much as I like the Grizzlies, I do think I undersold them overall. But I'm right now, I'm more in the openness to it being a longer series, not an openness to Memphis winning it. But we could be, you know, a few hours away from my mind being changed. And that's awesome. Like, if that's what ends up happening, like, I love the playoffs because you get so much information so quickly and surprises are most of the time more exciting than what you, than what you expected to see happen. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, it's the more job Morant that the national consciousness can be, you know, introduced to, like the better. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's funny I, that you think about the weirdness with the bubble. Like, I think the public's going to get a lot more Luka Doncic, too. And that is a really good thing for the future of the league. Right, right, right. It, you got to highlight those guys. They're so freaking good. And that's a, a basic thing to say. But, like, we know who LeBron is. We know who KD is. We know who James Harden is. Like, we know what those stars are and what they bring to the table like let highlight the younger talent right this is a unique opportunity to do so with trey with ja with luca especially with him murdering the clippers like the way that he is right now like this is a unique opportunity for the league to kind of put their their young stars on front street and hopefully that leads to momentum. Like I, one of my big criticisms of the NBA in other years has been they generally are reluctant to put young stars at the forefront until they've gotten there. And I think it's better to to do it early. And then some of them aren't going to make it. That's okay. But and they, they mm-hmm. tried hard with Zion, and Zion missed half of his first season, and they got a little bit weird. But getting this exposure and honestly, like having it sometimes be in the playoffs early is can that can lead to a different thing. You know, it's kind of like the guys who make their star in the NCAA tournament and then become NBA players like Steph Curry is an example there like you fans can connect with it especially more casual people in Mm -hmm. a different way and so I I am really excited that Luca Trey um John and a a few other young guys like they're actually and Devin Booker they're in Mm -hmm. situations to succeed right now and so not only are they going to have some some flashbulbs on them some of those guys are going to make the second round at least Mm -hmm. at least one of them but maybe two we'll see was maybe three but probably two or one but that's going to be really good for the league eventually because there's this really weird gap I've talked about it with with Nate Duncan before of the there's this like stretch where basically Giannis and AD are 
the only guys in their currently like in their late 20s that are really 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 good players and like these the superstars of the last bit are in their early 30s or in the case of LeBron in his mid 30s and so we're kind of waiting for the generation and yeah it's possible that Luca and Trey and all that they're not ready to be like the best player in the league but who knows with Luca like that might be sooner rather than later but the closer they get to taking that mantle the more exciting it is Right. And then I would, to that point, it's an unfortunate series for him in particular, but like I would also add Jason Tatum to this list. Sure. Just the way that he has played through COVID this season and has still managed to take a leap. Like, I think the league is in good hands, but I mean, again, this is a unique opportunity to kind of highlight all of that young talent right now. I I will say this right now. I will probably be going heavy on the Celtics over next year, and I might be wrong. It might (laughs) blow up in my face, but I mean, I still believe in a lot of what they're doing. Maybe not their like playoff series wins over, but like their regular season wins over for sure. Right. Like surely they have to be a little bit healthier than they were this year. Like the bar is on the floor in that regard. It absolutely is. Um, Well, thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure talking with you. Pleasure talking with you, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Nikias Duncan for taking the time to come on. You can listen to him on the Dunker Spot podcast. You can read his great writing at Basketball News. And you can follow him, if you don't already, on Twitter at Nikias NBA. That's N-E-K-I-A-S NBA. Loved having him on. Really enjoyed the conversation. And I'm so fascinated to see where the playoffs go. Round one, sometimes fun, sometimes more perfunctory, but it's been really interesting so far and hopefully will continue to be so. And lots of big ramifications, ripples of, of what's happening moving forward. Really loved having Nikaias on to kind of navigate all of that type of stuff. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. That is particularly great for Real GM Radio because it will never come out on a specific day of the week. It's my availability, guest availability, everything else like that. You can also... Tell other people about the show, whether that is leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing, or word of mouth saying, hey, this episode, whatever, the the whole show in general, you really like this, that can be a great way to do it. And you can also support me by checking out my other work. Nate Duncan and I are doing Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, of course, weekly public episodes and then subscription, and you could do Total Access or Dunked On Prime. Really fun process, and it allows us to be even more flexible with our recordings and everything else. Like we released, we did the full weekend, but we released the Saturday games for Dunked On Prime subscribers right away. And then we did, and then we, you know, other people got it a day late. You can check all that out. Also, we're doing the NBA cast, which is our calling of games, which we do with League Pass, or we have done with league pass during the season but then during the playoffs there's no league pass so we're doing it with hot mic now which is awesome so you can it's a technology where you can sync basically using your television audio you can sync our commentary to your tv you don't have to worry about like matching timestamps though there is a manual match if you need it and that's been really exciting and we'll keep working on that we're doing roughly three games a week including nick's hawks on today wednesday and then we're going to do lakers suns game game three on thursday as well and then we'll figure out a weekend plan once we see where things go between now and then so you can check that out and always have a lot of other irons in the fire you can follow me on twitter and everything else for that if you have any feedback good bad or indifferent danny larue nba at gmail.com is the way to get it to me twitter is too ephemeral everything else if you take the time to email me i promise i will read it i'll try to respond i'm admittedly not great about that but i will read it i do that every day before i go to bed um it's important to me and that's why i tell you to do it because i do that so that is all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24-7 with supplies and solutions for every industry and access to product specialists ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Do it for the team. The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up. Do it for your besties and the resties. It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And camp outs. To experience. And big hugs. And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania taxpayer dollars.